Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. And welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, I have to tell you, I'm in a town right now. I'm not at home. Okay. I'm in a town right now that is like made of Alyssa's. It is wall to wall Alyssa's. Just peaceful, harmonious place. There's weed. No tummy troubles. There's jam. There's ocean views. There's cute little coffee shops that smell like cinnamon. It's a wonderland. Ugh. My heart is warm. They should call this town Master Monaco, but it's not called Master Monaco. No, maybe one day. <laughs> this week, we are joined by Kyra Harris-Bolden, Nona Willis-Aronowitz, and Amanda Nguyen to tackle the following questions. How many abortions do we think conservative politicians have paid for? What is at stake in state Supreme Court elections? What is bad sex? And does the path to inner peace lead through a clean fridge? All this and more right now. Well, well, well. Well, well, well. Well, 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 well. What you got? You know what those wells refer to? What you got? Oh, is that about fucking around and finding out? It's about fucking around and finding out, but it's also about something that seems extremely expected. And here, I guess, oh, yeah. So here's an example of the fuck around. Herschel Walker running against Reverend Raphael Warnock, a great senator, uh, to replace him for Senate in Georgia. So Herschel Walker has run as a hardline right-wing conservative who has said that he supports a federal abortion ban with no exceptions. He believes abortion is murder. Okay, so him running his mouth on this was an example of him fucking around. Yep. Here's him finding out. Herschel Walker paid for his girlfriend's abortion in 2009. He did. And that was something uncovered by a reporter at the Daily Beast. And it's not just hearsay. It's not just, oh, you know, this is a woman who says this happened. They've got 
receipts. Receipts, actual receipts, and a card. There's a card, Aaron. Okay, what does the card say? The card says, hold on, Aaron. It's a get well card. It says like peace, relax, and love or some shit like that. It's basically a sign from Michaels. Exactly. But he did sign it with his like H football signing signature. His H with a check inside. Yeah. So the woman who says that Walker paid for her abortion provided a $575 receipt from the abortion clinic, a get well card from Walker, and a bank deposit receipt that included an image of a signed $700 personal check from Walker that was cashed or deposited just days later. The woman says that the $125 difference was because she ballparked the cost of an abortion after Googling the procedure and added on expenses such as travel and recovery costs, which, of course, yes, do it. Of course, yes, correct. That is correct. So, Alyssa, I just want to say before we have to move on to the next story, honestly, if Herschel Walker were not such a rabid hypocrite and an anti-abortion zealot who wants to ban the procedure in all circumstances federally, this is the proper etiquette for when your girlfriend wants to have an abortion. It is proper etiquette. It's like he didn't do anything here. He didn't, in 2009, he didn't really do anything wrong. Right. It's just fast forwarding to 2022 where he says it's murder, but somehow I guess he didn't commit murder. Is that how it works, Aaron? It's just the woman that commits the murder? Just the woman, just the provider, not the person who paid for it or encouraged it or, you know, whatever. No. And can I add one quickie, one quickie I saw online from our yeah Dana Loesch, who runs the NRA and is over there at Breitbart? I forgot she existed. Don't worry, Erin. Don't worry. She's bringing it back. She said the other day, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want to control the Senate. Just a good reminder, they want to control the Senate. They want to control our bodies, the courts, and that early voting starts in Georgia October 17th. (laughs) Very, very important reminder. I also want to add that, you know, in, was it 2017 that there was a special election for Senate in Alabama? Mm-hmm. featuring one Roy Moore correct, running for Senate. Roy Moore is somebody who was a documented sex pest around teenage girls when he was into his 30s. Yep. Well-documented sex pest. If you are a Republican and you truly believe that abortion is murder, they don't really believe that. They, they don't. Because if they really did... It's a shtick. They would think that what Herschel Walker did was much worse than what Roy Moore did. Mm -hmm. And Republican organizations are continuing to back Herschel Walker. Double down. Whereas they backed away from Roy Moore. It's just, they don't believe it's murder. No. They just want to punish women. They just want to control women. They just want to punish providers. They just want to make our country uh, terrible. Okay. Um, Speaking, speaking of controlling women. Oh, yeah. Um, Do you have, uh, you have a story you wanted to get into, right? I just had a little quickie quick story that I thought was worth flagging. Erin, Florida schools are asking student athletes to report their menstrual histories. Erin, why does Florida hate women athletes or all athletes, but athletes who menstruate so much? What? Yes, apparently they used to, athletes used to have to file medical forms and now they were on paper. And now here's one worth flagging. The app, the technology that they're using to have these female athletes track their periods was developed by the former chief digital officer of News Corp, one of Rupert Murdoch's own. Okay, InfoSec nightmare. So why do they have to say 
when they first started getting their period, yes. In this new app, they have to say when they started getting their period, when their last period was. Aaron, why would they need that information? They're going to send free packs of maxi pads a week in advance? Like, what do they need this for? It's trash. And also, ugh. What they need it for is because they're trying to make a big deal out of the fact that there's this conservative boogeyman right now is trans girls trying to play sports. Right. And in reality, this is, there are so fleetingly few cases of trans girls wanting to play sports that this being a driver of the national dialogue, it's a strange political trick. And it's also something that is like favored by Russian disinfo type campaigns, by the way. Totally. And the last thing about this, too, is that because it's not a medical website, it is uh, it's a sports. They say it's for like planning how you play sports and you're scheduling your practices not covered by HIPAA. OK, so if you're a girl in Florida, lie. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say lie about your period. I agree. You got it when you're 14 and your last period was last week. That's it. Yep. Every time. Every time. Every single one of you got your periods when you were 14 and your last period was last week. Works. Okay. Amazing. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, exciting interview for a potentially groundbreaking member of the Michigan State Supreme Court. And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria. Alyssa, you and I have for a long time talked about Michigan. One of our favorite states. One of America's top 50 states, for sure. (laughs) And it's one of the most interesting states politically right now. Really great, young, progressive voices there. And they're fighting against some really, really nutty right wing stuff. So it's one of the most interesting states politically right now and a lovely state to visit any season of the year, Uh, which means we are especially interested in the political career of our guest this week. Today's guest is a Michigan state representative running for a seat on the state's Supreme Court. If elected, she would be the first black woman in Michigan Supreme Court history. Her accolades are numerous, but just to name a few, the 2021 Legislative Economic Development Champion Award and the 2021 Michigan Credit Union League Legislator of the Year Award Kyra Harris-Bolden, welcome to Hysteria. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So Kyra, as a member of the Judiciary Committee in the Michigan State House, you've been an advocate for criminal justice reform, and you helped not just write, but pass, in a bipartisan way, legislation to protect survivors of sexual violence. So in this climate and in a state as politically divided as Michigan, how? That is a wonderful question. So I think being an attorney, right, which can be a contentious environment, it has always been important for me to have a good relationship with opposing counsel. We never know when you're going to see somebody again on another case. And it's just not good career-wise to, you know, burn bridges. And so one of the first things I did before I told anybody how they should be doing things, which I did have a lot of thoughts. I decided to build relationships and not only within my caucus, but with the other side of the aisle as well. And so 
Uh, we would go out to dinner. Um, I actually co-founded the Attorneys Caucus with a Republican colleague. And I think building relationships goes a long way, especially when you want to have a great working relationship, but also when you're trying to understand someone's perspective, but also perhaps change hearts and minds about a certain issue as well. Mm -hmm. So now you're running for Supreme Court, state Supreme Court. There are five candidates, two of which are incumbents running for two seats. So what what has that been like? How does one run a campaign as a Democrat to be a nonpartisan judge? That is a wonderful question. It's really interesting, actually. In Michigan, we have a very unique system where the Michigan Supreme Court nominees have to be nominated by a major party in order to even get on the ballot. And so a lot of people say to me, you know, you're a partisan elected official. How are you going to be a nonpartisan justice on the Supreme Court? And then I tell them, well, you have to be nominated by a major party to even have an opportunity for people to vote on you. So it's a very interesting process there. But I would say, so for those that know me know that I've run half of this race pregnant and now I'm running the other half with a newborn at home. And um, she's the reason why I even decided to do this. But it does add an extra layer of, <laughs> of something to this race. But I will say that I have been so encouraged going across the state of Michigan that people want to hear me speak, that they want to be supportive of me. They really believe in this campaign. We have the most individual donors for this campaign, and we've actually raised the most amount of money. And it's been overwhelming the support that we've been able to get, even though we are essentially running against um, an incumbent and trying to unseat an incumbent, which is a difficult task, not undoable, but it is an uphill battle. And then in Michigan, too, the incumbent justices are also designated as such on the ballot. And so there's an extra layer of work that we have to do to increase our name ID uh, to the point where people feel comfortable voting for me instead of just seeing someone that's an incumbent and just voting for them. Kyra, what's at stake in Michigan? Can you give us a sense of the kind of cases that have been heard in the courts in the past couple of months? Yeah, absolutely. So I think some of the most noteworthy cases of our time that you would probably be familiar with, and then I'll go into more recent history, but whether or not the residents in the Flint water crisis can sue their government. That was a 4-3 decision by the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, there was also a case where the Michigan Supreme Court had to decide whether schools had the ability to enforce gun-free zones. And so that wasn't this year, but um, really important decisions. And that was a 4-3 decision by the Michigan Supreme Court as well. More recently, the Michigan Supreme Court decided whether or not to include the LGBTQIA community within Elliot Larson in our state, which was not a unanimous decision. And of course, many people may have heard that there was a reproductive rights ballot petition set to go on our ballot. Um, the Board of Canvassers for the state of Michigan actually deadlocked on whether it should go on the ballot based upon spacing issues uh, between the words. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, again, um, that was not a unanimous decision to put that on the ballot. And what, what do we know? We know 
that some of the most important, if not all the most important issues of our time for generations to come will go to the Michigan Supreme Court in Michigan. And from the reproductive rights petition case, we know that if the board of canvassers deadlocks for any reason, for any reason, that issue goes to the Michigan Supreme Court. So the stakes are incredibly high. It's very important to know who sits on the Michigan Supreme Court and to make sure that that person is reflecting your will as a voter. So on to maybe the hot button issue of the election. So Tudor Dixon, who is running as a MAGA candidate for governor against incumbent Governor Whitmer, has told voters at her events recently that they can vote against Whitmer and still vote for abortion by voting for proposal three. Like, can you explain what jiggery pokery Dixon is trying to pull here and how is abortion being used in this election? Um, I cannot. (laughs) I I have uh, I have no words for that particular comment. Um, But what I will say is that I think the importance of our elections of this year and particularly of the Michigan Supreme Court have become 100% blatantly clear to folks. And so, again, many issues will be on the ballot. One of the other issues that the Michigan Supreme Court will determine is voting rights. You know, who gets to vote, how they vote, where they vote. We've seen this in Wisconsin, where the Wisconsin Supreme Court affirmed the banning of drop boxes. Now, that legislation has not been introduced, to my knowledge, in Michigan, but as more things are being kicked to the state courts from the United States Supreme Court, it has become abundantly clear that these top issues that will affect generations to come will be on the ballot in November. And so it's up to the voters to decide who they want in these positions. And we're working very hard to earn every single vote that we can. You live in your hometown of Southfield, Michigan. What are the issues impacting your community most? What are you hearing that people are facing on the campaign trail when you're out there? So my race is a little bit different because obviously I'm currently still a representative. And so I have to be on top of the needs of my community. But in running for Michigan Supreme Court, we're actually prohibited from talking about issues, which is another unique challenge for this race. But for my community, we've always been really concerned about kitchen table issues. And so having good roads to drive on, steady, safe roads, our education system has always been really important to voters. My district has a large senior population. And so Healthcare and drug costs have always been a top issue for my community. And then other issues that are very important, again, are voting, how people are able to vote, as well as, you know, just making sure that folks have a great quality of life with, again, you know, healthcare and education and, you know, making sure they can put food on the table. And so for me, justice is a quality of life issue. And so I feel like this goes directly into what I've been doing all of my career, including being a state representative. People are not going to want to stay in a state where they don't feel seen or heard or understood. If there are judges and justices that bring their own personal bias and people feel discriminated against, or they feel like they can't get a fair shot when something happens, I think that's really important to a quality of life for a Michigander. 
So I think that directly impacts my community, but as well as the state of Michigan. So Kyra, we always like to end on a high note. You are a proud Alpha Kappa Alpha. Tell us how being an Alpha prepared you for this fight. Yes. So um, I always say um, I wouldn't be here without my wonderful sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, but also just all the fraternities and sororities of the Divine Nine are incredibly supportive. I mean, seeing one of their own, we saw this with our Vice President Kamala Harris, who is also a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And I would like to mention that she was in Southfield, Michigan on election day in 2020. Uh, So I would just, just, you can uh, derive whatever you want from from that. But, But I think that is so important for representation purposes and just also support And yes, I am a proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any pink and green onesies? Of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Just about all of the onesies are pink and green because we have to groom them early, (laughs) um, you know. (laughs) So hopefully my daughter will um, become a member. And if not, then she will join no sorority. So... (laughs) 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 I love that. I love that family pride in, uh, in your sorority. Um, Kyra, thank you so much and, uh, best of luck in the upcoming election to Michigan state Supreme court. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and we'll be watching to see what happens in November. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Oh my God, Alyssa, it's October. It's October. It's our favorite. It's our, it's like, it's our favorite. It's finally here. We love, love spooky season. So throughout the month, we're going to do something kind of fun. We're going to highlight our favorite neutral to malevolent female entities from folklore around the world in a segment we're calling Witch of the Week. And of course, when we say witch, we mean that in like <laughs> the best way possible. Witch of the Week. Yes. We're witches. In a way, yes. In our own way. Which is of the news, but nobody is like going to show their kid a picture of me and be like, she comes in the night because I know I'm not. (laughs) So I want to talk first about a witch that when I was a kid, I had this childcraft how and why library in my house. And there was like all these like folklore stuff. And there was this one picture in the book that I would like Uh stare at until I was too scared to stare at it anymore. And it was an artistic depiction of Baba Yaga. Now, Erin, I just have to say for everyone, you've been talking about Baba Yaga for years, so I'm glad that Baba's finally getting her moment. So Baba Yaga is a Slavic witch from, you know, from Slavic folklore, Russian folklore, Mm -hmm. who flies around in a mortar and pestle and lives in a house with chicken legs. And just the legs. The house has legs and like can spin around and stuff. Okay. And eats children in some traditions. So Baba Yaga can be helpful. Or a hindrance to people sometimes plays a little bit of a maternal role is basically like a creepy forest witch, like a hag in the forest, which is a sort of common trope I found when we were coming up with like witches to highlight. Baba Yaga has songs written about her. One of Mazorksky's pictures at an exhibition suite is titled The Hut on Hen's Legs, Baba Yaga. It's about her. 
And also, let's see, uh, Baba Yaga appears in all different types of pop culture in Spirited Away. The film character John Wick is referred to by his enemies as Baba Yaga, which is sometimes synonymously used with Boogeyman. So that's Baba Yaga, our Witch of the Week. Toast to Baba Yaga. Yeah. I mean, you have no idea how much this fucked me up. This picture as a kid, I would just look at it and be like, I hope she never comes after me. This, I feel like the impact that that Baba Yaga picture had on you was similar to the flying monkeys in The Wizard of Oz had on me. Oh, yeah. I thought those were fine. I didn't care about those. No, those scared me. But I didn't know Baba Yaga. Also, why in all of these old, old, old tales, are they always eating kids? What's wrong with people? Grim, her, they're all eating kids. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that somebody who has studied this or who knows a lot more about this than I do would say that it is a way to marginalize women who refuse to adhere to the prescribed social roles for them. Fair. Like an old woman living alone in the woods without children. Like, what's wrong with, oh, we have to make that into a monster. Of course, she eats them. Yeah, she, she must eat children. If she doesn't want them, she must want to kill them, which, of course... Aaron, never let them say I eat kids, okay? I would never. Oh, my gosh. I will appear on the news. I would go on Tucker Carlson and defend you against accusations of child eating. That's love. That is love and loyalty. Yeah, that's 100% love and loyalty. Anyway, Bobby Yaga, go ahead and look at a picture of her if you want to. It's scary in like a fun, spooky way. So uh, that's our Witch of the Week. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I just like, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, (laughs) not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. 
And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode of Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Need the perfect Mother's or Father's Day gift? Check out Viore Performance Apparel. Drawing inspo from the coastal California lifestyle, Viore's products inspire others to live vibrant, active lives. I love that they're calling this the coastal California lifestyle. I will embrace that instead of what I thought it was, which was the I only want to wear comfortable clothes lifestyle. Yeah. I have to. I refuse to be uncomfortable I refu- if I want to be productive. <laughs> I refuse to be uncomfortable, but sometimes I have to look like I belong in a respectable place lifestyle, which is like yeah. Viore is perfect for it because they the clothes look fantastic. They fit great. They are so comfortable. I lie down in mine all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, Erin, the women's performance joggers. They have a slim but relaxed fit and are designed with dream knit stretch fabric. I love my joggers. I've slept in mine. I've slept in them. Really? You don't get hot? No. They're very, like, on oh. a, it's like a couch nap. You know, you have like a, oh yeah. you've got like maybe a half an hour in the afternoon. You're like, ooh, I've got a like small break. I'm very tired. I'm going to just like lay down for 20 minutes. It's yeah. Perfect. Perfect for couch okay. napping. Joggers. I love the leggings. I can work out in them. I can do my errands in them. I can wear them with a proper top to a business meeting. It is not a problem. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you probably could. Just put yeah, a, a totally. blazer and like— Denim shirt. Denim, denim shirt, oh, blazer, yeah. leggings. So easy. 100%. And, of course, the men's core shorts. They have a classic athletic fit, falling just above the knee, while the Sunday performance joggers are made from recycled performance stretch fabric. I got my dad some men's core shorts. He wears them to mow the lawn. That's perfect. He is, like, I think my my dad is one of those people that just, like, beats the crap out of his clothes. He'll wear them until they're— they look like a security blanket that a 30-year-old yep. still has where it's just like a ball of string and you're like, um, Our dads are the same. Yeah, yeah. But um, my dad has had his for like a couple years now and I think I, I saw him wearing them the other week when I met up with um, family on a, on a short weekend trip and they still looked great. It was like, Dad, your clothes still look new. <laughs> so fancy. Viore is offering Hysteria listeners 20% off your first purchase. Get some of the most comfy and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. You'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. And welcome back. You are listening to Hysteria. Alyssa's with me. We're about to bring the panel in. Alyssa, I know that your book, uh, you have a chapter on sex. I do. I think you could probably recite what the chapter is. It is the chapter I wrote about sex says, I have nothing to say about it. 
<laughs> yes. Alyssa Mastromonaco famously squeamish about speaking about her own sex life. But today we're not talking about our own individual sex lives necessarily. Thank you so much for flagging that up front. Necessarily. We're going to talk about the general environment in which we form our sexual identities and the culture around that. And I think that's that a couple of our guests might be able to talk about that more specifically. First up, our next panelist is going to have a movie made about her. What? 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 She's going to have a movie made about Wait, I'm going to ask this as a follow-up question. So let me get through her intro first. You've heard her on this podcast before. You might have seen her unanimously pass a sexual assault survivor's resolution at the United Nations. Heard of it last month. She advocated it with her nonprofit, Rise. We are so excited to announce that she is now joining the Hysteria crew as a member of our regular rotation. Amanda Nguyen, welcome to Hysteria. Thank you. I'm so excited. Okay, wait, a movie? Yeah. How, though? Details. So when the press release came out, I was actually surprised because I didn't know that Forrest Whitaker was an executive producer. Kelly Marie Tran is playing me. And so, you know, my friend made the joke, of course, Rose Teakout and Saw Guerrera would make what? a movie about an in-real-life rebel. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's... Such an incredible honor, and I'm so excited. I'm so grateful. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I um, I will be watching, probably streaming it for <laughs> sure. Um, and our next panelist is new to the pod. She's a writer and advice columnist who just recently published her book, Bad Sex, a memoir social history blend that examines the enduring barriers to true sexual freedom. I have a copy of it now. It's a beautiful book, and it's wonderful. Love it, love it, love it. Nona Willis-Aronowitz, welcome to Hysteria. I'm so, so excited to be here. So, Nona, I'm going to start with you. Since this is your book, you called it Bad Sex. What is your experience with, what do you mean when you say bad sex? What's your, uh, what's your experience with it? I think the title means several different things. I mean, one, it does mean actual bad, actual sex. Like the kind of sex that you know in your gut is just not doing it for you, but you're having it for reasons other than pleasure. And I think a lot of us have sex for all kinds of reasons besides pleasure. But bad sex, I mean, it could be the mechanics are bad, but more often I think it's because our expectations or our desires are not lined up. There's some outside pressure that's making us have this sex, even though we don't really want to have it. Or it could be like a direct pressure of somebody pushing our boundaries or something like that. But I think even more broadly, what I mean by the title is we're at this point where the sexual revolution was decades ago. Sex has gone mainstream. Feminism has certainly gone <laughs> mainstream. And we have all this information about how to give ourselves mind-blowing orgasms and how we deserve pleasure. And, and there's vibrators galore. And there's all kinds of spaces to be honest, supposedly, to be honest about your sexuality. And yet there's still stubbornly few ways in which women in particular can feel sort of sexually free and open. And 
there's just a lot of ways in which sex and relationships can go bad. So the title is kind of multi-layered, I think. Hmm. So first of all, Vibrators Galore sounds like a really funny name for a sex toy <laughs> emporium. If you ever open one, Nona, you should call it Vibrators Galore. <laughs> Amanda, I wanted to pivot to you since I'd imagine that you have opinions on sex education and uh, consent and pleasure in general. So how did your sex education teach you consent? Yeah, I actually, I looked up some studies. I prepared y'all for this. Okay. So I want to read some stats that is related to this segment in the podcast. To answer your question, I don't think that there's enough sexual education. Of course, it's still taboo, you know, and when we think about it from a American standpoint, in places in America, as I was doing my advocacy to, you know, protect rape survivors, it was such a huge, just jarring context to be in because there were, I've done this work, you know, in refugee camps as well. And in refugee camps, some of them, you know, reproductive health care after an assault is just, it's not guaranteed, but it's supposed to be guaranteed. You know, people just assume like that's a thing. That's a right that you have. And I was doing this work in Alabama and that's absolutely a non-starter, right? And so I think that there are so many different standards, even within our country, where education and consent and the definitions of what is taboo and what is not really varies. But I think that women's pain is fetishized and that our joy is demonized. And because of that, we see politics become really integral when we talk about sex. If so much of it is about controlling a woman's choice in so many aspects, it's not only reproductive health care. And I remember I grew up in California, so sex education was literally, you know, in high school, your parents had assigned something and you had one day, right? And that was it. And consent needs to be taught much earlier than that. And we I think need to have just a much broader conversation about this at a very early age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, seriously. And Nona, in your book, you talk a little bit, I, I don't have the quote right in front of me right now, but you made a point in something that you wrote about how there's nothing more joyless than the like obligatory pursuit of sexual like exploration. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like why do people joylessly pursue sexual exploration? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to untangle, but basically at some point, I peg it to the 90s, there became this sort of flattened version of sex positivity where- Tell me about it. <laughs> it was kind of pathetic and lame to not explore as much sex as humanly possible, or at least explore as much pleasure. It's the Samantha from Sex in the City vibe. It's the you go girl kind of vibe, but the sex element of that. And I think, I mean, I was growing up right in this thick of this era where I got the message if I wasn't constantly in sexual pursuit and feeling myself and like trying to get these explosive orgasms, then like, what was I even doing? My life was lame. My life was awful. Later, of course, I inject a little nuance in that perspective, but I think that's where I think a lot of people our age, Gen Z actually, I think is rebelling against this, but a lot of millennials did get this message. 
of sort of like you, you have to be this perfect sexual human. And I mean, I am kind of describing a rarefied group, right? Like there are a lot of people in the United States who are still much more influenced by conservative notions of sex, that sex is shameful, that sex is evil, that you shouldn't have it unless you're in a relationship or a marriage. But I think a surprising amount of people feel the opposite, that they feel a little ashamed, that they're not in a relationship, that they're not that interested in sex. And I think a lot of asexual people or people like who aren't asexual, they're just not that interested in dating right now. They sort of feel a pressure to do it anyway, especially in certain environments like college. I'm the sex and love advice columnist for Teen Vogue. And this probably is the most frequent question that I get. It always goes something like, all of my friends are hooking up, but I actually don't feel like doing it. Am I a freak? Am I weird? Is there something wrong with me? And I think finally Gen Z does feel empowered to just say no to sex that they don't want to have. But I think it's a real millennial thing to feel hesitant to not have this joyless pursuit of sex all the time. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, you're nodding. Did you feel similar pressure? Oh, this is hitting, hitting home, hitting home. So I was, my senior year in college is when Sex in the City debuted. Okay, so 1998. And growing up, I felt like very fine and normal uh, in high school. And our extent of sex education, okay, was on a microfiche. Google it if you've never had one. Um, but it was on a microfiche. And my best friend, I hope she's listening because she'll be proud that I'm shouting her out, uh, got into a fight with the health teacher who was also our gym teacher, um, <laughs> because the answer to the question about how you contract AIDS included from toilet. I mean, like, it was the wrongest answer ever. And she's like, this is wrong. This is not how you get AIDS. And it was just very, very outdated. I think some of our textbooks were from the late 70s and early 80s. And so I was just kind of like me. And then you start hearing, and I took feminist theory in college and all this, and I was like, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I'm not like this. I must not be a feminist. I'm like a bit of a prude. I mean, not a prude prude, but like a prude. <laughs> and which is, guess what? As a liberated woman now, I can be like, and that's fucking fine. But back then, that was not at all how it was. If you were not Samantha Jones by 1999, you were repressed. You know, that was the feeling is that, oh, Alyssa might be repressed. Do you know what repressed means, Alyssa? And I was like, no, stop giving me Seventeen magazine. I'm fine. But so this was very much my, which is why when I wrote my book and the publisher had said, you should write something about sex. And I was like, well, do you want me to be true to me? Because I'm not writing about it. It's not something that I do. And I think that that was sort of, you know, everybody you'd get around and everyone would literally make up story. This was again, the late 90s about how adventurous you had been or like what you had done and who did what. And it was like, if you couldn't keep up, there was something wrong with you. And that was a very hard time for me. Mm -hmm. Amanda, I wonder how you feel about this particular topic. Do you think that there's a pressure in the U.S.? Because I think that making the distinction that there's totally different attitudes around sex and consent around the world, but like in the U.S. and among, let's say, college-educated women, do you think that there is a pressure to be like more aggressively sexual than a lot of people are comfortable with? Yeah, I think that that pressure has always existed, but in different forms and in different ways and under the gaze of the patriarchy. 
you know, and it's, yes, in some ways it has been, oh, well, you know, if you are really sexual, you're liberated, right? You're not repressed. But I also think it really just boils down to choice, right? And your ability to just do what you want. And if that means not having sex, that's okay. But something I really do want to talk about is sex and politics in the bed. Because I think that there are some fascinating studies on how people's partisan identities are stronger than race and ethnicity. And that like most people, when you hear, you know, if your partner is of a different party, like that's even, you know, that's so wild, right? Like people don't know how those marriages work. And those perceptions, I think, are more and more in this partisan times, just more divided. Mm -hmm. Talk more about that. Okay, so I do have studies. I'm going to read them right now. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so about seven in 10 Democratic daters would not consider being in a relationship with a Trump voter. And there was this study, a Stanford scholar, that found that the strength of people's attachment to their political parties surpassed affiliations with their own race, religion, and other social categories. And we have to talk about this new dating app. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's called The Right Stuff. Have you heard about it? (laughs) Yes, for conservatives. It's a dating app only for conservatives. And let me tell you, I'm not kidding you. One of the prompts that's on the dating app says, January 6th was blank. January 6th was no, blank. No. Yeah. And if you have been on TikTok lately, which, um, <laughs> yeah, I have, um, people, there are literally like FBI officers. They're like jokes, but I don't know if they're jokes no. of like FBI officers like on this app <laughs> because they want to see what people say in this prompt. Shit. Uh, Seems smart, actually. Oh, my gosh. Nona, I wonder, like, so as an advice columnist, you get questions. Do you get a lot of questions from people who are kind of agonized, I want to say, or torn over being attracted to somebody who has a different political ideology from them? Is that something that, that like, young women and advice seekers are worried about? I mean, most people who are writing me are in their teens and nobody is more self-involved than teens. Like I love them, but they are. Nobody's talking to me about politics. They're asking basic questions about matters of the heart. Like how do I tell somebody that I like them? How exactly does P and the V sex work? Um, stuff like that. Like they're not talking about ideology, which is interesting. And sometimes they're talking about identity, of course, but they're not really talking about like tribal commitments. Like I, I must not like this person or that person yet. I'm sure they will. And I feel like college is like probably when you do that, if you do go to college. But honestly, to me, the seven in 10 thing seems low. Like I can't imagine being a democratic woman who cares about basic rights for women, reproductive rights or otherwise. And voting for a Republican, because at this point, there's an open agenda to roll back those rights. (laughs) Like, it seems kind of like at this point, now that Roe v. Wade has fallen, there's really no plausible deniability about what Republicans want to do when it comes to women's sexual freedom and reproductive freedom. So I certainly, I don't really identify as a Democrat per se, but I'm on the left and I certainly wouldn't even think of 
even dating one of those guys who are like, let's make a compromise and ban 15-week abortions. Yeah. I mean, that's a ban. It's still a ban. You know, like they make it out to be a compromise, but it's a ban. I, ugh, that's like one of my bugaboos right now. So I think that's a super interesting segue into talking a little bit about our current political moment as sort of a response to the sexual revolution, which, again, you know, happened decades ago. Why do you think that the tale of like the backlash to the sexual revolution is so long? Like, how have they been so focused on this for this long? Nona, I feel like this is something that you've sort of thought about. I mean, I'm just going to paraphrase Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times, who I don't always agree with, but she said something very astute, which is the last several decades of figuring out these dilemmas are a result of liberating sex without liberating women. Like, it's kind of just as simple as that. You can't just have a sexually liberated society where misogyny is rampant. It's never going to be a safe place for women or other people of marginalized identities, like women of color or people of color or LGBTQ people to safely explore sex. Like it's not going to be neutral until those things are eradicated, which they probably won't ever be. And sex sometimes gets framed as it's fun. It's no big deal. You know, don't take it so seriously. At least that's kind of how it was framed during the sexual revolution. Like in the seventies, everybody's just having sex with everybody and like, don't have hangups, baby. It's all fun. And I think that ever since then, people have been responding by saying, look, we are more vulnerable members of society and it's much more complicated for us to be sexually liberated. And I think the sexual revolution was, I mean, not exclusively, but primarily conceived by men or through the lens of male desire. I think that there were a lot of ways in which women tried to inject their own desires. I mean, starting from like, you know, the fifties of like women who loved Elvis <laughs> or like, you know, the early radical feminists who were exploring pleasure in the consciousness raising sessions, or even women who were supposedly objectified by, you know, porno chic or sexual revolutions culture, but like we're feeling a bunch of relief for not being called a town tramp anymore. Like there were women who were harnessing their desires during this time and continue to. But I think, you know, the sexual revolution was never a revolution for everybody. It was primarily driven by what men wanted and what men wanted to be available. And so that's sort of how the problem started. And it's never been truly resolved because misogyny is stubbornly rampant. <laughs> Um, Amanda, you were nodding feverishly during portions of Nona's response. I would love to hear your thoughts on who benefited from the sexual revolution. Yeah, I think that the lens of, again, these movements being traced back to still the male gaze, I find within my field, which is, you know, sexual violence advocacy. So often rape survivors are actually known for who assaulted them, right? So when people identify survivors, oh, it's Bill Cosby's survivors. That's Epstein's survivor. That's And so their identity, what happened to them, their body is still tied back to a man or their perpetrator. And, you know, it's really upsetting, but I think is one of the examples of how tight of a grip 
the patriarchy in our society views this issue while it's still stemming from a male perspective, even in the Me Too movement, right? So um, Toronto Burke has continually said that the movement is not about ripping down perpetrators, ripping down men. And yet when we look at the news and the way that the news portrays this issue, the part that they focus on is the sex, the scandal, and the man. So often we don't know the Mm -hmm. names. Yeah, the phrase got me too. Like he got Mm -hmm. me too. Right? It's not about the survivors or the women. So, you know, I think that's deeply unfair. And it's also a symptom of, again, this being traced back to a male gaze. And so how do we, how do we burn it to the ground? (laughs) I don't know. I don't think, I don't think we have enough matches, but I guess maybe we need to get a (laughs) gas can. Alyssa, you kind of were talking earlier about uh, sex education and we've kind of all danced around this, but haven't really drilled down on consent in sex education like was consent taught to you as part of your sex education definitely not how did you learn what it was and how important it was so I learned about consent truly if I'm being totally honest my sophomore no junior year at the University of Wisconsin because I had uh, transferred and I started I unwittingly was living on fraternity row Langdon Street shout out And the, um, oh my God, what was the name of the, Take Back the Night. Remember Take Back the Night? I was just going to say Take Back the Night. Yeah. (laughs) It was Take Back the Night. And so Take Back the Night had been at the University of Vermont. And for some reason, though, the messaging, because Vermont's not a very Greek school and it's 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 hippy-dippy, you know, like you can smoke weed but not drink booze. It's just a different vibe. And when I got to Madison... It was very clear. We had flyers. There were sessions. There were groups in the student union where you could go and hear the leaders of Take Back the Night, and they would talk to you about what can happen. Right now, of course, it's different now. I mean, back then it was like, here's what can happen if you stay at the frat too late. You know, this is – it was still a what situation did you put yourself in and how to get yourself out of it as opposed to how it's not your fault. But – and that's not their fault. I mean, it was – 1995. But that was the first time it's like, no means no. You can say no at any time. It wasn't about saying yes to things. You know, like it was not the saying yes, like, yes, this is what I want to do. Let's have a conversation. It was more like, stop. You've gone too far. This is not what I want. It was a little, it felt more dramatic, I guess, kind of. But they really did. I will say that there was, there was a lot of messaging, a lot of conversation around it back then. Finally. But it was not part of my microfiche in 88. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I think we had like uh, transparencies. We were beyond. Remember the transparencies? Yeah, that's what it was. It was transparencies, not a microfiche. It was transparent. Overhead yeah, projector. We had transparency machines. Yeah. Underfunded rural school. Um, Amanda, you were in college during, I guess, the years that the campus rape discussion was huge. And, you know, I was, I'm like in between Amanda's age and Alyssa's age. And I remember thinking when campus rape became a big topic again, like, I remember this being a topic already. And like, all of these like sessions, and it was something that was talked about on the news, and there were 2020 segments about it. And, you know, now we're back here again. How did that play out when you were in college? How did the consent conversation go? Yeah, well, I think that we're seeing that cycle you mentioned because colleges have built in transfers, right? You graduate and then, you know, the protesters are gone and, you know, they just wait their time 
in order for the descent to cycle out, which is why it's really hard to sustain that kind of activism within a system that gives you, you know, four years. I actually decided to tackle the United States government with my advocacy instead of Harvard, because I thought that the United States government would be easier. (laughs) 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 And the reason why is because I had seen all of these campus sexual assault advocates and how terribly you know, universities treated them and that, you know, at least in private institutions, even if they get federal funding, the bottom line wasn't the same, right? It was like, oh, we're not here to prosecute. We're not here, you know, questionable whether or not like a student's safety is even part of the mission. Um, But in the United States government, I was like, okay, these are rights. You have a baseline and I can hold you accountable to the thing that you tried to get elected for. But I often think about the bravery of all of these activists who stood up when I was there, they had, you know, these Title IX protests and they put on their graduation caps, Title IX. And it was a huge deal. Unfortunately, one of the, my class day speaker, he had so many women come out against him and he's still allowed to speak. And I remember people getting up and leaving, but yeah, I mean, you know, they have these Again, waves built in so that people graduate out. And that's why we're seeing it over and over again. But I think the like flip side to that is that we will always be speaking up about this. And, you know, it's just because we graduate out doesn't mean that the fight is over. That's so funny that you say that, Amanda. I feel the same way about feminists that like every few years, feminists like kind of graduate out and then like we start having the same conversations over and over and over. (laughs) I was actually like not in college, but like a journalist sort of in the midst of the timeline of my book when the campus assault conversation was happening. And I felt like I really could have used it when I was in college because I think I was still having the take back the night, no means no conversation. And then all of a sudden, yes means yes became the standard. And I think it honestly got like very skewed. Like people were very facetious about it being like, oh, do you now have to have a contract to have sex? But when you like really start looking into what it means, I was very attracted to this idea of sort of like this humanizing ethic of sex of just like, is the person who you're having sex with wanting to have sex with you? And are they having a good time? And are they tuned into your pleasure and vice versa? And it was sort of this basic thing that I didn't have in college. Yeah, that's, I think, Nona, you and I are the same age. And it was a similar vibe. A complicating factor for me was I went to a Catholic school. (laughs) And so sex was like something that didn't, it was against the rules. Like you could get kicked out of school for getting caught having sex, for real. Whoa. In college? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were also really strict visiting hours for men's and women's dorms. After midnight on weeknights and after 2 a.m. on weekends, you couldn't be in another dorm. You couldn't be in the opposite sex's dorm room. I guess, like, gay people didn't exist on Notre Dame's campus. They totally did. But, yeah, it was like – and when I was in school, there were – there was kind of a debate maybe my junior year about how after – visiting hours were over there were security guards in female dorms but not male dorms Mm. so there was like a a way that people broke the rules you know there was like okay you got to sneak in this side this side door and go up the fire stairs of this dorm uh, and you go 10 minutes before the end of the night and you pee in the guy's sink the way the rules were set up though (laughs) yeah 
people, you would pee in their sink because if you went down to the bathroom, you could get caught. The way the rules were set up though, up until I want to believe my senior year was that basically that set of rules, they were called parietals, made it so if you were breaking the rules and you were in a boy's dorm, it made it so that it was easier to break the rules in a boy's dorm, right? It also made it so if you got caught in a boy's dorm, you could get in huge trouble. So if you went into a guy's room before the lockdown happened and there was something non-consensual that happened, if you reported it, you could get in trouble for breaking the rules. Wow. That's fucked up. Yeah. And it was until like, yeah, that, that wasn't how the rules were supposed to be. And there wasn't anything explicitly that said, if you are a victim of assault, you will not get in trouble for breaking parietals. But it was like this, it was crazy. It was crazy backwards. And it's still not exactly the most forward thinking space today. But like going to a religious college was a real mind fuck. It certainly didn't help me reach a point where I understood consent, pleasure and doing things because I wanted to rather than doing them because I thought that that's just how you're supposed to act when you're in your 20s. Like I was kind of poisoned by the Cosmo fun, fearless female thing. I was like, well, I guess you're like, guess we're putting donuts on penises. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> guess we're doing that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't really have like enough experience to understand that some of that was just like entertaining and some of it was actually sort of meant to be fun. But as the only model of like how to be a sexual cishet straight, you know, straight woman in the world, it's sort of like kind of messed my brain up a little bit. But I wanted to talk to you, Nona, real quickly. So, you know, right now we're living in an environment. We talked about politics. The politics of the day is that there's one political party that has rigged the system so that they are going to be in power despite the fact that a minority of Americans agree with them in many places. And we have a Supreme Court that is ready to overturn and roll back years and years of, of precedent and rights that people have over their bodies. Roe is over. Right now, in some places, you know, if you're a young woman and you have sex with a man, you know, being around a man, he could rape you. You could get pregnant. You could then be forced to be a mother. There's no repercussions. Do you think that the young generation is starting to view heterosex as not worth it? I wouldn't go that far. I think people think of Gen Z as like, most of them are queer and like trans and like going off, you know, like they're not having sex at all. But actually a huge amount of them are still, like I said, grappling with the same questions that we are and still trying to make heterosexuality work. I think even <laughs> <laughs> like trying to make it work. Um, I honestly don't think that that has ever worked. Some, but a lot of people in mass defecting from heterosexuality. Um, it's defeatist and it's unrealistic and it's denying people's true desires. I think a lot of people are truly heterosexual. They, and a lot of women genuinely do want to figure out how to safely and joyfully have sex with men, partner with them, have families with them, and I think for a lot of people, and, and this was true in the beginning of second wave feminism, I think a lot of feminists were banking on the fact that a lot of people are still going to be heterosexual and that'll be kind of a motivator for them to continue trying to make things better. I think like when we think of people saying that 
oh, men are trash. They're not worth it. Like, I'm just going to be a lesbian. Ha ha. Like that sentiment, which is often called heteropessimism. Asa Saracen coined that term, and I think it's a great term. I find it to be extremely dismal. I find it to be giving up too soon and relinquishing your own desires because you're embarrassed about them and you're too depressed about the state of things. Is it embarrassment though? Like if giving into your desires could subject you to this whole host of- No, I'm saying people think that being heterosexual is an embarrassment. (laughs) Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, like they're embarrassed to be heterosexual. (laughs) And I mean, I understand, like I've engaged in heteropessimism also. I've been like, damn, like why am I putting so much effort into a group that- often like has no respect for my gender. But I think to think of it, to think of your own desires as an embarrassment is sort of a non-starter. It will not get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a sort of through line is that throughout history, people have been thinking of their desires as an embarrassment and this isn't anything new, you know, it's, it's a, it's a new type of shame. It's, it's a new flavor of shame, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. We have to take a quick break. Uh, Nona, stick around. Amanda, stick around. Alyssa, stick around. When we come back, we've got some housekeeping. And then Sani Petty. Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicklaus and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagle's Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at ococean.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. And we are back almost to the end of the show. Not quite. Alyssa and I have a little housekeeping for you first. Oh, if you haven't heard, Crooked Media has partnered with our favorite comfortable and sustainable shoe brand, Karayuma, to create two awesome pairs of shoes. If you haven't gotten yours yet, now is your last chance and they are selling fast. 
You can order your favorite today in the Crooked Store. And as always, portions of the proceeds go to Vote Riders, the leading organization focused on voter ID. And if you've already snagged your pairs, your shoes are on their way. See both designs and grab your perfect pair at crooked.com slash kicks now. Ooh, big news. Big news for people with radios. Happening. Or cars or ears. Crooked is bringing you the election coverage that you love to hate with Crooked Radio every weekend in October on Sirius XM Progress and on the Sirius XM app. Join our lineup of podcast hosts, candidates, experts, and more, including hysteria, as we break down all the issues that matter this November. Dive into the conversation shaping our current political climate and give the only 100% correct opinions in politics. You don't want to miss this. Subscribe now and get up to four months free of Sirius XM. See offer details at SiriusXM.com slash crooked. Okay, the house has been kept. Let's get to Sandy Petty. Amanda and Nona still here with us. Alyssa, are you feeling petty or are you doing Sanity Corner this week? Doing a little Sanity Corner this week. Okay. You ready? Guys, I cleaned my car. I cleaned my car. It has been an albatross hanging around my neck. I was like, my car is a dump. I mean, it is, it's an, it's <laughs> like not the outside. The outside looks fine, but the inside, how many cooler bags, how many empty, like, I mean, you guys, I don't, it, the real embarrassment about it is I don't even have garbage service where I live. So I go to the dump twice a week and I still hadn't found it within me to just leave the shit at the dump. Like all the things that were just stacked up in the back <laughs> of my car. So anyway, the uh, LL Bean bags have all been vacuumed out. The dead bugs have been removed. I got the Windex out for the windows. I got the armor all from my dash. And you guys, when you see the Subaru coming... Sparkles. And for some reason, I got inside and I was like, I am so proud of myself. I am so proud. I like took so much care. It was like when it was like when I got my first car when I was like, well, I mean, they were all hand me downs, but when I had to take care of my first car and I was like, why don't I do this more often? And now I got to the grocery store the other day and I was like, I see dust. And I now have a Swiffer pad in the side door and I was like, got to get that dust. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Amazing. That sounds so lovely. So anyway, it made me feel good. I was like, it really, it removed a lot of stress every time I got into the car and I was like, shit, it's dirty in here. Oh my God. Clean car is game changer. Seriously. Oh, and for all those asking on Twitter, yeah. Then I went and got some mums. All right. Mums and pumpkins. I'm that person. Okay. I have mums. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amanda, do you want to go next? Are you feeling petty or do you have a sanity corner this week? Okay, I have a sanity corner and it relates to what Alyssa said. Again, I am addicted to TikTok. But on TikTok, there's this organization talk where they have just people organizing things. I know it sounds so lame, but it's so fun. So I went to Container Store and I bought a bunch of these little containers and I just organized my bathroom and um, I feel already more calm when I'm in the space. It's just, even the like, sound of organizing it's like asmr mm-hmm. to me you know so i do that i actually okay this it's a little <laughs> it's a little out there but my fridge i organize my fridge too and this sounds again i know it sounds out there but i literally labeled i got the same containers for all of my sauces and i put them in <laughs> i have to show you a photo oh my gosh you are you are yeah, yeah, one yeah. of those insane people. I see videos of this all the time and I'm like it'll be people buying like 
different mm-hmm. types of noodles and and like oh now I have I have quinoa and I've got wild rice and I've got you know I've got jasmine rice and then it shows them coming home and like opening the packages and putting That's them me. in something else insanity insanity and you know what the thing about that is though is that how do you know the cooking instructions once you've dumped them all into your <laughs> into your okay well I I take photos of it I take photos of it it's on my phone okay okay. But I also got a label maker. I have to send you a favorite. And I labeled every single one. <laughs> Anyways, this is what I do. This is what I do when I'm hetero-pessimist. Um, and I open the fridge. And it just calms me. It's my sanity. I'm like, oh, my labeled bottles. This is what you do when you're single. Into it. <laughs> oh, man. Nona, do you have an I feel petty or a sanity corner this week? I have an I feel petty. Oh, God. There was this big, long article in The Cut about sleep training recently, and I read it. I read it like two days before my family decided to sleep train my five-month-old baby, and it's frankly scared the shit out of me. I mean, speaking of TikTok, there's a lot of toxic shit on TikTok and Instagram reels just about like smug attachment parenting of... (laughs) Like the fact that sleep training is going to mess up your baby. And I was just feeling extremely desperate for sleep. And I was like, I don't care what these people say. I'm just going to do this. I need to be a good mother to my child. And I'm in on day seven of sleep training. And it's not perfect yet, but she's doing so, 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 so well. And I'm already feeling so much better. Like, I feel like a change has come to America. I'm just like, oh my God. And now I'm feeling so petty against those like martyry TikTok moms who are just shaming people for needing (laughs) sleep. So to those moms, I say, um, I'm feeling petty against you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, How dare you have needs as a mother? How dare you? How dare I have needs? How dare I need more than like three hours of unbroken sleep? I mean, God. And it's like on a more earnest note, it was so interesting to be able to block out all that noise and just be in tune with my baby's needs and realize that I know my baby best. And like there was a lot of intuition of like, does she need me right now? Do I have to go and do the check-ins or whatever? And not be worried about what people were saying on TikTok. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. We tried and failed at sleep training, um, but I have people, uh, friends who have who have said it saved their sanity. And <laughs> really? you know, every I feel like it's one of those things where everything sort of normalizes eventually. Eventually, you know, you do what's best for you and your family, and you do what's best for your baby. And it's all going to turn out fine, hopefully. Um, but congratulations on on getting there and and the the new fresh outlook. Well, I won't count my chickens. I won't count my chickens before they hatch. But it hasn't been a total disaster, and bedtime <laughs> has transformed from like a horrible, horrible thing that I used to dread to like her drifting off in two minutes. And I'm just like, holy crap, this is amazing. So we'll hope it sticks. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I will. Uh, fingers crossed for you because this, that's that's huge. Okay, I don't know if I'm feeling petty or if I'm just feeling like tinfoil hatty, but it's my show, so I could call an audible. Um, so I recently watched the film Hocus Pocus, the 1993 film Hocus Pocus, a staple of October's since it came out. And as I was watching it, something that always kind of stuck in my craw was that the main character 
Max, is a boy who relocated to Salem, Massachusetts from California. And they show that he's Californian by having him wear like tie-dye and use slightly different slang than the people in Massachusetts, the Salem people. And I never quite bought him as like a total outsider to this world. He's got kind of floppy hair. Um, I never quite bought him as an outsider to the world. And as I was watching it, I realized that Hocus Pocus would be so much better. And I know I'm going to sound like a woke liberal here. If Max were someone who had moved from the West Coast and was Latino, the movie would be so much more emotionally resonant if we remade it with Max as a Latino. Because the script makes more sense if the person coming to the East Coast is facing something slightly more challenging than I just moved and I wear tie-dye and they don't wear tie-dye in this town. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I don't buy like the central conflict and alienation of Max. There needs to be something more. And I feel like the 1993 of it all mandated that all of the main characters be white kids. But I feel like if we, you know, maybe at some point in the future, I know there's a Hocus Pocus too. I'm, You know I'm Googling this now to see who Max is. <laughs> if they were ever to remake Hocus Pocus, the first one, I think that they should consider making Max a member of a different group. He should have a different background than the people in Salem to make it more resonant. But that's what I'm feeling petty about this week. Max. Is it Max or Mike? It's Max. <laughs> is he in the second one? I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. And then picture like little Thora Birch's character as like a spooky little kid who sort of like doesn't really care about what other people think of her. What was her name? Becca? Uh, Her little, no, the the little sister of Max, Danny. Yeah. Mm. I feel like they might have aged out of the sequel. <laughs> I mean, it was 1993. Anyway, I feel like the the film was directed by Kenny Ortega, who is a Spanish-American yeah. guy, and he's from Palo Alto, California. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, he's directed a lot of Disney movies. I looked into him because I was like, I wonder if, like, this was supposed to be something, but no. Um, but he's directed a lot of Disney movies, and I feel like if he ever got another crack at Hocus Pocus, he could make it a little bit more West Coasty by having uh, Max be somebody who is like identifying from the West Coast in more ways than just his geography. That's my, what I feel petty about this week. Feels like it's a good one. Anyway, something to chew on, something to chew on. Um, Okay, that's all the time we have for the show this week. Nona Willis-Aronowitz, thank you so much for coming by. This was a fascinating conversation. Amanda, thank you for stopping by. Alyssa, thank you as always for being my ride or die. Thank you to Kyra Bolden for the interview. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. I am from another planet. This nation these girls Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Fiona Pastana is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroot.
you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 